Welcome to the 40th episode of the Jewish History Podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. As always, please share this podcast with your friends. The website is rabbiwolby.com. The email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. And I look forward to hearing from you. The subject of this podcast is the great Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, who was a colorful, dynamic, and intriguing personality, the scion of a prestigious rabbinical family, indeed the father of many great rabbis who came after him. Many of them still hold prestigious positions in the Jewish world today. This man is a man of uncommon superlative genius, a man of unusual dedication to kindness and loving his fellow Jew, a man who authored a book of novel insights onto Rambam's code, onto the Yad HaZaka of the Rambam, that was published 18 years after he died, yet remains until this day the absolute gold standard of its genre. But most importantly, Rab Chaim Soloveitchik is the father of a new, penetrating, incisive, and brilliant approach to Talmudic study and analysis that took the yeshiva world by storm at the end of the 19th century, first in Volazhin and then throughout Lithuania, throughout Europe, and an approach that is now ubiquitous in the yeshiva world. Chaim Salvechik was born in 1857 in the city of Volazhin. His father, Rabbi Yosef Dov Salavechik, a giant on his own right, one of the Gadole Hadar, one of the leaders of the generation, he was also known, his father was, by the name of his works, the Beis Halevi, which include Halachic Responsa and a commentary on the Torah. Uh, Chaim was named after his great-great-grandfather, Rabbi Chaim of Volazhin, who founded the Volazhin Yeshiva and was the subject of a podcast episode uh, several episodes ago. And at the time of his birth, the reason why they lived in Volazhin was that his father was the co-Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva in Volazhin, alongside the great Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who is known to all as the Nitziv, which is an acronym of his name. Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin is the Nitziv. At the time, Volazhin was the primary yeshiva in the Jewish world. And thus, to be its Rosh Yeshiva was essentially the most prestigious post in the Torah world. But co-Rosh Yeshivas, it's kind of like co-CEOs. You have to have one person in charge, or else there's disagreements. And after several years of this agreement, where the Nitziv and the Beis Halevi, who's the father of our subject, uh, when they were co-Rosh Yeshivas, there was a disagreement and they decided to submit the matter to a basedin, to a court. They took some of the greatest rabbis of the time and they presented their arguments. And the court ruled that the Nitziv is going to be the sole head of the yeshiva. And Rabbi Yosef Dov Salvechik, he'll be there as well, but not he won't have the same authority. That worked out for a little bit, but ultimately Rabbi Salvechik left after a decade in Volazhin. He became the rabbi in a different city, in Slutsk, and eventually in 1876, he became the rabbi of the city of Brisk. As fate would have it, his prodigious son Chaim would return to Volazhin, 
first as an outstanding student. Then he would go on to marry the Netziv's granddaughter at the age of 20. And at the stunning age of 27, he was installed, like his father before him, as Korosh Hashiva alongside the Netziv, a position that he would hold until the yeshiva's closure in 1892, at which time, ironically, he would go and fill his father's position again because his father died as well in 1892. And thus, Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik went and replaced his father as rabbi of Brisk after his passing, and he maintained that post until his own passing in 1918. Now, as a child, Rab Chaim exhibited exceptional and unusual intellectual capacity uh, and genius. Uh, it was said about him by Rab Chaim Ozer Grajensky, who was in the 1920s and 1930s, he was the Gadoladar, the greatest Jew of the generation. He said about Rab Chaim, he, he didn't have a superior mind, but his mind, his intellect, his cognitive capacities were on a class unto their own. As uh, about him, they would say, uh, they, people of his time would contrast Reb Chaim with Reb Yosef Engel, who was the rabbi of Krakow. Both of them were great geniuses, but there were two different types of geniuses. Reb Yosef Engel, the rabbi of Krakow, he was an incredible genius. He could offer 80 solutions to one question. You have one question, he gives you 80 answers. Reb Chaim's genius was the opposite. He would give you only one answer. But an answer of such depth, of such genius, of such profundity, that it would solve 80 separate questions. And moreover, there's stories about him that he was able to understand not only people, but also how people thought. And of course, his understanding of Torah was unfathomably deep. Uh, But the story goes that he was able to build mental models of how other people thought simply from hearing what they had to say for a little bit. So he was able to understand not only what people say, but he hears what someone says in one instance He's able to to interpret what this person would say. He would impose this person's understanding and be able to deduce from that how they think and then could apply that to other situations. So, for example, in the the book, The Mating of a Godal, they give many stories. He gives many stories about this particular skill. So his father, he told him before his bar mitzvah, I want you to give a speech for your bar mitzvah today when kids give a bar mitzvah speech, generally someone else writes the speech and they just parrot it over to the assemblage. But back in the day, the bar mitzvah boy himself would prepare the speech himself. So his father tells him, okay, I want you to give a bar mitzvah speech for your bar mitzvah. And I want you to speak about a shverer rambam, which is Yiddish for a difficult citation in the code of Rambam, the Salvechiks as a family, and of course Reb Chaim individually, they had a fascination with the code of the Rambam, and they would study it and write a lot of their books on it. So his father tells him, 
take this particular difficult opinion in Rambam and I want you to reconcile it. But don't rec- don't answer, don't approach it as you would with your intelligence. I want you to figure out, I want you to give the speech and answer this difficult citation in Rambam as I would. And that was his speech. He gave a lecture and he was able to capture the perspective of his father, how his father would answer this difficult question. Uh, there's another example of this unique skill from his days in Volazhin. The administration in the yeshiva wanted to open a kolal. But a kolal at the time, a, a basically it's a yeshiva for advanced and married students, that was uh, that was unusual. It wasn't. There weren't so many of them out there, and it was it was something that they felt that they were going to refrain from doing it without consulting a renowned Torah scholar beforehand. And they decided to send Reb Chaim to the Rabbi of Dvinsk to convince him to support this initiative and to write a letter of recommendation in support of this kolal in Volazhin. So Reb Chaim enters the room and introduces himself to the rabbi of Dvinsk. And at the time, Reb Chaim was already a household name throughout European Jewry. So he tells him, you're the famous Reb Chaim? You're the famous Reb Chaim Salve, the genius everyone talks about? Okay, let's talk about some Torah. Why don't you offer me a question? Why don't you ask a question? So Reb Chaim responded, I should ask you a question? Let's flip this around. How about you ask me a question and I'll give you two answers. I'll give you my answer and I'll give you the answer that you, that you, that you would offer. He was able to extract from the content of the question and the way it was phrased, he was able to deduce what the rabbi, what his answer would be. And there's a third story about uh, uh, one of the rabbis in Europe his name was Rabbi Mandelbaum, and he was the Rav, the rabbi of the city of Turov. And he came in 1874. He came and he met with Rabbi Chaim Salvechek. And they started talking about Torah. But he didn't introduce himself. The visitor didn't. And after they start talking for a little bit, Rabbi Chaim turns to him and says, Oh, nice to meet you. Rabbi Mandelbaum, the rabbi of Turov. So he asked him, how do you know who I am? I haven't introduced myself. So Rabbi responded to him, I identified you when I realized that your way of Torah study matches the one in a responsa authored by the rabbi of Turov, which I read. He was able by reading how someone responded to a question, he was able to understand how they thought. And even though they he's never met this person personally, he's speaking to someone and clearly this is the same person. Obviously, this demonstrates that he, his, his genius was on a different level, different, different type, a very unusual mind. So even though his father... And the Nitziv and Valajin, they had a falling out. It wasn't personal. And they maintained a good relationship. And thus, Rabchaim, as a teenager, was sent to Valajin to study. 
and he was the absolute star student of the yeshiva. And the story goes that on Simchas Torah, on the day of celebration of the Torah, the Nitziv, the Rosh Hashiva, would hoist Reb Chaim on his shoulders and he would declare to the students, you're all dancing with a Torah scroll, you're dancing with the written law, the Torah Shabbat, Torah I'm dancing with the oral Torah. Reb Chaim had such a deep grasp on oral Torah that it's like I'm dancing with a veritable Torah scroll. And as a student, the Nitziv, the head of the yeshiva, he really wanted his granddaughter, Lifsha, to marry Reb Chaim. She was very young, and he was very young as well. And he was worried. This young student comes to the yeshiva from great stock. His father's one of the great rabbis of Europe. His great-great-grandfather was the Reb Chaim of Volazhin. Obviously, he's a catch. And it's possible that there's going to be some wealthy person who hears about this and is going to come over to Reb Chaim and say, okay, I'll pay you whatever you want. I'll give you enough money. You can study Torah for the rest of your life in peace and tranquility. Marry my daughter. That's what he was, he was worried about. So apparently, the Nitziv, he told the fundraiser of, fundraisers of the yeshiva, which, if you remember, we spoke about the Velazhin yeshiva, they were the first yeshiva to actually fundraise to meet their financial obligations so that the students would have their needs taken care of. So you have a whole network of fundraisers going throughout Europe and even to America, and everyone in Europe is hearing about this young star student, Chaim Salavechik. So the Nitziv tells the fundraisers, whenever you ask, whenever you're asked about the son of Rabbi Yashaber, the son of the Beis HaLevi. Whenever, whenever someone asks you about this person, tell him he's, tell him he's not so worldly. He, he's someone who just wants to study. He doesn't know how to relate with the world. And he felt that by saying that, it would, be, it would make him somewhat unattractive to wealthy potential suitors. And therefore, he would be safe for him when his granddaughter gets of age, they'll marry, which indeed is what happened. And it's interesting, even though the Nitziv is the grandfather-in-law of Reb Chaim, he always referred to him as his son-in-law. And perhaps the reason is because he orchestrated that the that his granddaughter and Reb Chaim would marry and therefore, he felt uh, some somewhat of a proprietary ownership of this relationship, and he's like the father-in-law. In 1880, at the age of 27, Rab Chaim is appointed as co-Rosh Yeshiva with his grandfather-in-law, the Nitziv, and they head the Yeshiva of Velazhin together. And during this ensuing 12 years, the Yeshiva, it reaches its zenith. Under the dynamic duo of Rab Chaim and Nitziv, the institution exploded. Its enrollment reached 450 students. It, all the greatest young scholars from Europe coalesced into Velazhin, and really it was at its acme during those 12 years. And during this time, Reb Chaim developed and honed 
a new methodology of Talmudic study that eventually became known as the Brisker Mahalach or the Brisker Derech, the Brisker way of Torah study, which swiftly took over the yeshiva world, first of Elijah and then elsewhere, and essentially breathed new life into Jewish learning. So what is this Brisker Derech? What is this Brisker methodology of Talmudical analysis that Rab Chaim is known as being the originator of? So when you study Talmud, the bread and butter of advanced Talmudic study is trying to explain difficulties. The difficulties could be in the form of disagreements. You have a disagreement amongst the commentators. In every page of Talmud, in the inner margin, you have Rashi, the commentator of Rashi. On the outer margins, you have the comments of Tosvos. And on almost every page, they're arguing. And then off the page, you have other great commentaries, the medieval comments, the Rishonim, the more recent commentaries, the Achronim, and there's arguments. Well, how do you reconcile that? There's also questions that you could have. You read a commentary and it seems difficult. There's a logical problem or there's an inconsistency or there's a strange use of terms and that raises a question. Uh, There's another form of questioning where you have uh, contrasting Talmuds, Talmudic texts that seem to be uh, in conflict with each other. And what the advanced Talmudic scholars do, they try to explain and try to reconcile these problems. Reb Chaim developed a new approach, which is all about getting to the core of the concept. What's the idea? Whatever idea is being discussed, trying to filter down to the underlying fundamental essence of the idea and then providing sharp and logical classifications, definitions of the issue. And once you kind of sift it down to its essence, you work, you you expand outwardly to reconcile the questions on those given concepts. There's an entire parlance of these approaches. For example, the Brisker Mahalach, the Brisker Derech, the Brisker methodology uses the term Tzvei Dinim, which is Yiddish, which means two laws. And that is used when there's a distinction found between two very similar but not identical concepts. You have two concepts, and on surface level, they seem to be the same. But if you're able to dig very, very deep you could isolate a difference between the two and thus you could flesh them out as being different and thus perhaps that would be the key to answer a difficulty by saying, well, there's two separate laws here and therefore it's presented in a different way. Another term that is used is the chakira, where you have two conceptual approaches and you have to ponder which one of them is correct. A necessity of every chakira is what's called a nafkamina, which means you have to have a tangible ramification. If you have two conceptual approaches to a given issue and you want to offer these as two options, you have to have an instance where option A applies and option B doesn't or vice versa. Otherwise, they're identical. If you can't find a nafkamina, if you can't find a, a tangible ramification between the two, then indeed they are the same. But once you have a chakira, once you have two 
seemingly good options, then maybe you could demonstrate that two arguing authorities or the two arguing texts or the two conflicting citations, this is the fundamental premise. One goes with option A, or one understands the concept with option A, one with option B, and that fundamental premise is manifest on their surface argument. Uh, and other terms that are common in the brisker parlance is the simon or siba, trying to isolate if it's a cause or an effect. Gavra cheftza. Gavra is Aramaic for person. Cheftza is item. The Talmud in the book of Nidarim, which deals with vows, it distinguishes between a vow and an oath, a neder and a shvua. A vow, there's a whole halachic book, a whole Talmudic book dedicated to vows. A vow was, for example, if someone would say, I make a vow that I'm not going to eat apples for the rest of my life or for 30 days. So halachically, you are, from a Torah perspective, you are bound by that statement, which means if you consume that apple, you're actually in violation of a Torah law. Now, apples are kosher food, but you created a new halakhic reality on this item. And that is a vow. A vow is something where there's a new reality that's actualized on a given item. Whereas an oath, an oath also creates a new halakhic reality, but not on an item, rather on the person, the person who makes the oath. So if I say all apples are forbidden, that's something that happens to apples vis-a-vis me. Whereas if I make an oath, nothing happens to any apples, something happens to me, so to speak. And therefore, this question of gavra chefza is used a lot in, in, in the Brister method to try to understand where, if, if there's a given law or idea or concept, where does it reside? Does it reside on the vessel, on the item, or on the subject, on the person? And obviously, you know, we're not used to, in our life, outside of the Talmudic world, we're not used to thinking about things with such precision, with such subtleties. But doing this really opened up a whole new window of Torah study, of Talmudic study. A common Talmudic lecture in the brister way might assemble, let's say, I don't know, 20 questions on a Talmudic source and present various conflicting opinions or word usages by the Roshona, by the medieval commentators. And again, always looking for the linchpin, for the underlying so the foundation to establish a concept or fundamental insight that can clarify them all. Again, Reb Chaim was about giving one answer to 80 questions, not 80 answers to one question. So you have all these questions and all these opinions, and then you come to the root of the issue, and you sharpen the concept, and that is used to explain everything. And you bring all the various aspects of the issue together in a resounding crescendo of brilliance. You have to identify, you have to define, you have to test, you have to prove your hypothesis, and then you go back and re-examine the text and you re-examine the questions, and armed with these newfound insights, you try to answer them.
And once that's done, you could maybe even add what's called a chidushtin, an insight, a novel, a novel law that is deduced from what you have created in this, in this construct. Now, this obviously, no great innovation is without its detractors. It had some, those who didn't agree with this new approach. For example, Rabbi Yaakov David Velovsky, known as the Ridvaz, who was a Talmudic giant of the time, he called Rabbi Chaim a chemist because he was using almost like a scientific approach to Torah. Uh, nevertheless, uh, despite any opposition, uh, his brilliant approach really had a lasting ap- as- impact. The young students of Alajan were captivated by this new, newfound method of approaching Talmud, and they adopted and became his students, and they spawned many other students of their own who continued with this conceptual approach in other yeshivas. Each one of them were slightly different. They say about Rabbi Chaim that he had, you know, between five and seven core students, and each one of them would go on to head their own institution. Uh, there's a joke that they say about three disciples of Rabbi Chaim. Like we said, he had five or seven main ones, but uh, one of his main disciples was his son, his youngest son, Rabbi Yitzchak Zev Salavechik, who would end up being his, uh, he, he would be his successor as Rabbi of Brisk. Another one of his students is Rabbi Shimon Shkup, who headed the yeshiva in Grodno. And a third main student was Rabarach Ber Leibowitz, who was the head of the yeshiva in Kamenetz. And this, the joke that they say, which is trying to demonstrate the slightly different approaches of how his students understood his, or how they implemented his method, is that Reb Chaim came into the room and he told these three disciples Pointing to the table. He says, points to the table. says, this table is a cow. And he walks out of the room. So his son, Rabbi Yitzchak Zev Salavechik, the way he interpreted it is that, well, obviously the cow and the table are distinct and different. It's not a literal cow, but it's a halachic cow. We treat the table as if it was a cow. That's, the, that's how he interpreted what Rabbi Chaim said. And the Rabbi Shimon who was the one who was uh, least likely to go uh, uh, to go away from anything that's illogical? He would say, "Well, Reb Chaim actually means is that well, a cow has four legs, and the table has four legs. He's just telling us that that they that the table has four legs." And then the third student, Rabarach Bear, he gets on the floor and he starts milking the table. He literally thinks it's a cow. That's that, that's the joke that they say. Uh, there's another story, whether it's apocryphal or not, uh, who knows. But his student, Rabbi Shimon Strapp, the aforementioned Rabbi Shimon Strapp, uh, he met him on a train. And he walks over to him and he says, Mazel Tov. Rabbi Chaim says, Mazel Tov to his student. Mazel Tov, why, why are you wishing me Mazel Tov? He says, well, you just got married. I just got married? I've been married for decades. He says, no, but you wrote a book, and in the book, you write that conceptually, the way marriage works, halachic 
marriage, kiddushin, how does it work? So we think of it typically. You get married when you're 20 or 25, and then unless you get divorced and one of you dies, you stay married. So there's one transaction, so there's one halachic transformation that becomes the new status quo. And thus, unless it's changed, it remains. His student, Rabbi Shimon, he developed a new approach. And he said, no, it's not like the, the marriage happened once and it goes on uninterrupted unless something changes it. Rather, every second, the marriage renews itself. And he uses that, that, that insight, that every single second that someone is married, there's a new actualization, a new chalois, as they would say in Yiddish or in yeshivish, uh, in, in brisker parlance. There's a new chalois, there's a new actualization of marriage every second. That's what he said. So Reb Chaim saw him on the train and says, oh, Mazel Tov, you just got married today. Yes, you, might, you, you gave the ring to your wife 20 years ago. But according to you, you just got married today. But the old jokes and apocryphal anecdotes aside, almost all the yeshivos, well, I would say, I'm comfortable to say that all the yeshivos today follow Rab Chaim's approach. And even at the time, it became the norm. And there's some interesting consequences of this new mode of study. This brilliant and creative and precise and delightful format of Talmud study really addressed a pressing need at the time. And we've spoken about this in previous episodes, but young Jews of that era, they were enamored by the Haskalah and the idea of secular studies and the scientific method. And many great Jewish minds were swayed away from Torah and sadly, tragically, away from their brethren, away from, from their heritage. This new approach, this approach of Reb Chaim, it showed that the intellectual rigor and brilliance of Torah could absolutely compete and even outshine whatever the secular world has to offer. Additionally, it made Talmudic study on the highest level more accessible. Previously, if you wanted to offer a novel insight, you had to really be an expert in all of Talmud. If you wanted to be a star disciple in the yeshiva, previously, they were looking for 80 answers to one question. You can't give 80 answers to one question unless you're really an expert. Here, Abhaim tells you, no, you have to stick to the page. You're studying a page of Talmud. Stay on the page. Stay with the commentaries on the page. You only need one answer, but an answer that's able to address all the questions. And thus, in a way, even though it's, may be more difficult to study in this way, but in a way it's easier because you don't need to have all of Talmud in your pocket to be able to develop an approach on a sudya, on a section of Talmud. Indeed, as a youth, Rabbi Chaim, he said a lecture in front of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter told the Beis Halevi, told his father, in the future... This analytical approach will help foster a desire to study Torah amongst the students. And he added, in our generation, this is how Torah must be taught in a way that uncovers the sweetness and the beauty and the joy of Torah 
doing it the way Reb Chaim, the way he pioneered, that will ensure that Torah has continuity. In 1892, Velazhin Yeshiva was closed. Uh, for decades, there was friction between the Yeshiva and the Russian government, specifically with regards to the Yeshiva's refusal to teach Russian secular subjects in the Yeshiva. They were doing only Torah, nothing else. Uh, the Nitziv and Reb Chaim, they came up with a compromise with the Russians for about a decade uh, prior to the closure what they agreed was that they'll have some classes on Russian subjects, but they weren't taught in the yeshiva, and it was opt-in. Whoever wants to come join, fine. They, they tried to make an accommodation, but it was never intended to have part of the curriculum be Russian studies. In the end of 1891, the Russian government, they escalated their interference into the yeshiva, and they offered, they issued an ultimatum. Either yeshiva conforms to the official standards or the yeshiva has to close. And the Nitziv, he was faced with a very difficult choice. On one hand, you keep the yeshiva opened. And this is the mother of all yeshivas. This is the original modern yeshiva. This is the biggest yeshiva in the world. Keep it open and submit to their demands or you close it. And he decided to shutter the doors According to legend, he even locked the door himself. It's better to close the yeshiva than to allow secular studies to be taught. The Torah has to be, on this level of Torah study, it has to be done with absolute purity, with no interferences of any kind. But of course, he was heartbroken. And as a result of the closing of the yeshiva, he himself got very ill and he would die he would pass away a year later on his way to Israel and was buried in Warsaw. And Reb Chaim, he's only 39 and he's already uh, going to spend the rest of his life in a, an entirely different environment. No longer is he going to be at the helm of the greatest yeshiva at the time with the choicest, with the elitist not elitist, but the most elite students that the Jewish world has to offer. Now, unemployed, he heads back to Brisk. At the same time, concurrently, his father, the Beis HaLevi, is the rabbi, but at the same year, his father passes away, and Reb Chaim is installed as his successor in 1892. This opened a new chapter in his life. He's going to be a rabbi of a major Jewish town. He's still going to have a role in crafting and forming the great genius, young geniuses of his time. They would come to study by him in an unofficial capacity and on a smaller scale. But now his constituents are the people of the town. And we see, the stories are remarkable, we'll go through them. Uh, we see that he treated his students with superlative care, with concern, with kindness. Let's give a few stories to illustrate uh, this off-the-charts kindness of Reb Chaim. So the rich people of the city of Brist, they, they noticed that they were paying for a lot of firewood to heat the rabbi's house, to heat Reb Chaim's house. And they checked, well, why was it such? Why was it so expensive? They were going through the books, and it was so expensive how much firewood they're paying for the rabbi. So they went and they inspected, and they found that they had a shed 
where the firewood was stored and was locked. And all the poor people of the city were coming and just loading up with all the firewood they need for their own home. So they went and they bought a lot and they locked the shed and they gave the key to the attendant and they fixed the problem. So Reb Chaim finds out about this. Right away he orders that the lock be removed. And again, the storehouse is wide open and all the poor people came and fill up uh, their uh, coffers of firewood. So the city leaders come to Reb Chaim and they start objecting. Uh, you can't have the community that Tzedakah Fund provide wood for all the poor of the city. So Reb responds, if so, there's not going to be heat in my home either. How can I sit in warmth when the poor people are freezing in the cold? He had a remarkable empathy and compassion and sympathy for his people. In 1895, there was a horrific and tragic fire that ravaged the city of Brisk. Uh, these are homes uh, are built very highly flammable material. There isn't really an organized firefighting force. And once a fire uh, breaks out in a city like this, it can very swiftly destroy a lot of the city. And tragically, between some accounts say it was 70, others say it was 100 people uh, died in the fire. Some of them actually had broken into the shul to save the Torah scrolls only to be burnt alive together with them. Now, this fire destroyed about half the city of Brisk. But the problem was, it was primarily the poorer parts of town that were destroyed. So what did Reb Chaim do? So first of all, immediately afterwards, he organized a massive fundraising effort all over Lithuania to help rebuild but also to ensure that the townspeople don't dilly-dally in fixing and rebuilding the homes of the poor, Reb Chaim moved out of his home and slept on the floor of the shul of the synagogue every day until every single family had their housing restored. And thus he, he used this tactic. He says, I will not sleep in, on a bed. I will not sleep in my home until every single family has had their homes rebuilt. And thus he ensured that those people would not be left behind. In a book called Encyclopedia Brisk, it says, uh, an article by someone who was there privy to this, he says, Mi whoever did not see Reb Chaim's dedication and compassion and mercy on behalf of the inhabitants of Brisk during the Great Fire of 1895 never saw mercy in his life. Interesting note that the very day following the disaster, there were construction workers coming to the city, and the very first thing they fixed was the mikvah building. And why would you fix that building first? They told them, Reb Chaim ordered that the highest priority is that there be a functioning mikvah in the city. Now, Reb Chaim's kindness really extended um, to such a degree that he really didn't have any a, a private life at all. His son, 
Rabitzchak Zev called Revelvel, he said that his father he didn't feel like he owned his own home any more than a stranger who wandered in. Whoever wanted, there was, there was an open door policy. Whoever wanted would just simply walk in, make himself a glass of tea, cook something in the kitchen, sit down to eat, find a bed and go to sleep. And sometimes there were entire families with many children who arrived and stayed in the house for months. And sometimes, Reb Chaim, he was late at night, he goes to his bedroom and he sees that there's someone sleeping in his bed. So he would sleep on a bench or sleep on the floor. We, we can't fathom what's, what, 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 what degree of kindness uh, Reb Chaim and his family had. There was once a family with 10 children. They didn't have a place to stay. And they moved into Reb Chaim's house for months on end. And Reb Chaim treated them with warmth and love. In another uh, somewhat amusing episode, Reb Chaim was at his table and he's writing his Chidushi Torah. He's writing his Torah insights. And one of the children, who's this a guest who's just staying there, he walks up to Reb Chaim and he pulls his pen out of his hand. He needed it for scribbling. And the story goes that Reb Chaim's attendant uh, once walked into his room and he sees Reb Chaim on the floor crawling on all fours with a child on his back. He's given a piggyback ride to a child. And there's a bunch of other kids doing piggyback rides, horse and rider, in the room. <laughs> What's going on? So Reb Chaim tells him, that he was there, and he sees four children, there's five children there, and there's four children riding, and there's a fifth child who doesn't have a partner to give him a ride. And he's crying. And he asks the child, why are you crying? And he tells him, well, these four of my friends, they all have someone to give them rides, and I don't. So Chaim says, I'll be your horse. And he gets on his four, on all four, and he gives him a ride. And he tells his attendant, I, what am I supposed to do? I just can't bear the sight of a Jewish child crying. There's another story of Reb Chaim's kindness. There was a woman, a poor woman in town, whose husband had left her 11 months prior. And she became pregnant illegitimately. Reb Chaim instructed his wife to house her until after her birth he had the bris of the bastard in his own home and he arranged that she get a monthly stipend for her and her baby from the charitable trust of the town. They, they say that if you wanted to get rid of your unwanted or perhaps illegitimate babies, obviously not a common occurrence amongst Jews, you drop them off at Reb Chaim's doorstep. His son, Reb Moshe, was told by his father, do you think that the job of the rabbi is to rule on halachic questions? Well, absolutely not. If it was so, if the job of the rabbi was to rule on halachic matters, he wouldn't be allowed to take a stipend. How could he charge money for teaching Torah? The real job of the rabbi is to do chesed, is to do kindness. There's many times where Abchayim let the wealthiest people of Brisk sit and wait for hours on end 
while he was busy talking to the poor and the downtrodden constituents. His reason? If a rich person comes, it's possible they just want to talk. If a poor person comes, they're cle- he clearly has a problem he needs to discuss, and therefore he takes precedent. Uh, their precedence. There was a an individual who was researching for a book that was going to be titled "The Task of a Rabbi in Our Times," and he went all across Europe interviewing rabbis, and he asked Rab Chaim, "What are the responsibilities of a rabbi?" And Rab Chaim responds with two answers. First of all, the rabbi needs to take care of children born out of wedlock. If they don't, God forbid the children, the Jewish children, will be adopted by the church and they will grow up away from their faith. The rabbi has to hire nurses and nannies to raise these children in the Jewish community. That's the first thing that a rabbi needs to do. What's the second thing a rabbi needs to do? Second thing is that in the charity organizations and the free loan societies of the town, the overseers, the supervisors have to be elected annually. Why? Because a poor person comes to borrow and if it was the same supervisor as the previous year, he'll tell him, wait wait a minute, didn't you just come borrow money last year? And he might withhold the loan. And therefore, the rabbi must make sure that the supervisors, there's a turnover every year to someone new so that the poor people won't be left out in the dark without a loan. There's even a story with someone who was a hater of Torah, a Bundist, a secular Jewish socialist who was on trial for a capital crime. But it was possible to bribe the authorities and to save him. But who's going to save such a good-for-nothing, someone who hates Torah? Reb Chaim, it was Yom Kippur, and he stopped before Kol Nidre. The whole community is there. He said, we're not starting Kol Nidre until we raise enough money to save the life of this Jew. Another defining characteristic of Reb Chaim as a rabbi was the seriousness that he treated every case of pikuach nefesh, of mortal threat to life. The halacha is that we have to observe and obey and adhere to Torah, provided that our life is not threatened. If your life is in danger, then you must transgress Torah. Well, what if there's only a slight chance that your life may be in danger? Says Reb Chaim, if there's a one in a million chance of a fatality... All of Torah, with the exception of the three cardinal sins, with the exception of idolatry, adultery, and murder, must be transgressed. Uh, one such area, for example, is the laws of fasting Yom Kippur. You got to fast, not eat, nor drink for 26 hours or 25 hours. So what happens if someone who's sick, someone who's potentially going to die? So the prevailing opinion was that they should eat but they shouldn't eat in large portions. Eat in small portions, that way you don't transgress the biblical prohibition of eating on Yom Kippur. Sarah B'chaim, no, they have to eat normally. And he demanded that people desecrate Shabbos and Yom Tov if there was a Jewish life that was at stake. 
And the story goes that a Jew came to Reb Chaim on Friday evening on Shabbos. And he tells him that his son is in a different city and he's about to be brought before the draft board. And there's a chance that his father, if he goes there, would able to be able to get him exempted from army service. Can he go on Shabbos? Can he travel, desecrate the Shabbos to go and to try to intercede on behalf of his son that his son shouldn't be drafted to the army? And Rechaim said, yes. So the Jew left on his way and those close to the rabbi, they said, wait, wait a minute. This is not, okay, there's no, who, whose life is in danger? So Rechaim tells him, says, well, this suppose this man is drafted. And he'll have to serve for five years in the army. And who knows? Maybe there'll be a war that will erupt. And maybe he'll be sent to the front. And maybe he'll be killed. And therefore, even though it's a very slight chance that he'll be he'll be, be killed, but it's enough to desecrate the Shabbos. And they said to him, well, how could he be so lenient in the laws of Shabbos? He says, no, I'm not lenient in the laws of Shabbos. I'm stringent in the laws of Pekuach Nefesh, the laws of saving someone and ensuring that he doesn't uh, God forbid, die uh, unnecessarily. Now, how did Reb Chaim manage to accomplish so much in such divergent areas? He was able to concentrate for hours on end and delve into, into all of Talmud in a very deep and profound way, yet his whole day and his whole life, he's busy with kindness. So his son would say, that he would see sometimes his father talking to someone, but he's sweating profusely. And the reason why is Reb Chaim was really maintaining two separate activities simultaneously. He was able to compartmentalize his mind. On one half of it, he's dealing with his constituent, with someone who has a problem. But on the other hand, he's also working on a solution to a Rambam, on a solution to reconcile a, a Talmud, and he's doing it both at the same time. And the story goes that Reb, his son, Reb Velvel, that he was once studying, this is what happened frequently, he would, he would be studying in one room, and his father was in the other room talking to his constituents, and every few minutes, he would stop the conversation, run into his son, tell him about his new idea, his new solution, or his new question, or his new wrinkle, and then go back uh, to those guests and continue his conversation with them. They would say, that, how could you tell if he is 100% with you or only 50% with you? By the speed of how quickly he was massaging his jacket. Uh, either way, we see that uh, a man of, of incredible character, of incredible kindness, of incredible genius. Uh, and it's interesting. Reb Chaim, he said that he, he he wants his gravestone to read as follows. Ish, three words, that's it. Ish chesed haya. He was a man of kindness. In his view, his lasting legacy would be his kindness. In truth, he's much more remembered for perfecting and popularizing this profound and ingenious method of Talmudic analysis. And his gravestone 
which incidentally is adjacent to the Nitzivs in Warsaw, uh, the text on the gravestone uh, reads as follows. Po Nitmano, here is buried Rabbeinu Hagadol, our great rabbi, our great teacher, Rava Chesed, the master of kindness, Sar HaTorah, the minister of Torah, Hagon HaChazad Amiti, the genius, the pious, the truly pious person, Rabban Shakol Yisrael, the rabbi and master of all of Israel, who gave a, who charted a path in the Sea of Talmud and blazed a trail, a new trail in understanding and knowing Torah to its truth, who established students to the hundreds and the thousands, Moron Rab Chaim Halevi, Rab Chaim Halevi, the remembrance of a righteous person should be for Olam Haba. Salavechik, the son of Rab Yosef Dov Halevi, who was the Rosh Hashiva of the Shiva of Velazhin, and afterwards became the rabbi of the city of Brisk in Lita, in Lithuania, who left a voluminous writings on Torah, including a great commentary on Rambam that will be published soon. Like a pillar of fire, he disseminated a new light on the way of Torah and revealed to his students ideas like they were delightful as they were given at Sinai. He was ushered into the heavenly yeshiva the 21st day of the month of Menachem Av in 1918. About 18 years after his passing, Chidushi Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi Al-Harambam was published. It's interesting, in the introduction to that book written by his sons, they just say cryptically that for reasons, for many reasons, this was not published until now. But 18 years after his passing, even though he wrote every single word himself, it was published. And it's an absolute masterpiece. It includes his best novel insights onto Rambam. And you read it, it's, it's written as if it was written hundreds of years prior. It's very dense. Every word was sifted and polished and perfected until it shone brightly in a remarkable, remarkable work. Uh, just an example of his insight, which I think is a relevant one regarding prayer. Reb Chaim, he brings two statements of Rambam. In one statement, Rambam writes that when you pray, when you do the Amidah prayer, you have to concentrate for the first blessing. If you don't concentrate for the first blessing, you have to repeat it. You didn't fulfill your obligation. On the other hand, a second citation in Rambam says that, no, you have to actually concentrate for the duration of the prayer. You have to concentrate on what you're saying. So how could the Rambam say simultaneously that you have to concentrate on the entire prayer and still say that, no, you're concentrating just on the first blessing. Says Rabbeim, no, there's two kinds of concentration. Again, there's there's two separate laws. There's one form of concentration is understanding what you're saying, understanding the meaning of your words, and that indeed only applies for the first blessing. There's a second form of concentration, which is recognition that you're standing before God and talking to Him. And that you need for the duration of prayer. Rabchaim left a legacy 
unlike any other, primarily in his books, in his teachings, in his methodology, but also in his family. His son, Rabbi Yitzchak Zev, will replace him as Rabbi of Brisk. He moved to Israel in 1940 with um, his family and lived there until 1959, uh, one of the greatest Jews of his time. His other son, Rabbi Moshe, moved to America, became the Rosh Hashiva of Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan, the yeshiva in YU, Yeshiva University. Uh, his son is the famous Rabbi Yosha Ber Salavajik of Boston, who was the head of the yeshiva in YU. He, uh, his other sons and grandsons and great-grandsons are heads of many yeshivas throughout the world. But in a sense, we, all of us who have studied Talmud and were influenced by his new and innovative methods, we really are all his descendants because he was the one who charted the path of Torah study uh, for us all. Before we conclude, I want to give a, a plug and a shout out to a new podcast that I think you, uh, my listeners, may be interested in. It's called Torah Discoveries. Uh, my friend, Rabbi Tzvi Sullivan, is a scholar who actually lives in Houston over here. Uh, he's part of the Kolal here. And what he, uh, the objective of his podcast is to go through the weekly Parsha, but to study it and analyze it using various scientific disciplines. So he'll go through uh, geology one week or archaeology, understanding some of the scientific aspects or elements of, of Torah. A really fascinating, I, he only has one episode so far, Beratius. I listened to it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, you may listen, you may enjoy it as well. I'm going to put a link in the description. And if um, you're interested, uh, check it out. And that's all. Uh, thank you all for listening. And I look forward to next time.